Well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue our study of this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the church in Asia Minor, probably a circular letter that went around to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We're right in the middle of this fourth chapter, which is just dense with theology and practical implications. We began looking at it, this paragraph, a few weeks ago. We're going to isolate our attention this morning in verses 14 to 15, specifically looking at a blueprint for Christian maturity. Blueprints are what you lay out to know how to build what you want. And that's certainly what Paul does for us regarding Christian maturity. But he breaks it down in verses 14 and 15 and then in verse 16 between personal development for spiritual maturity and corporate as a church development for spiritual maturity. You can see that he's talking to individuals in verses 14 and 15 and then the whole body in verse 16. We're going to break it down and look at it like that. Look at verses 14 and 15 this week and then come back to verse 16 next week. Let's get a running start from where we've studied, looking back to verse 11. Speaking of Jesus who had descended to the earth in the incarnation, ascended after he died and rose again back to heaven, and then because of his victory over Satan and over sin, he was given gifts that he gave to men. And he gave some men as apostles, some as prophets, verse 11, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." As a result of that desire for us to be mature men and women, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. In all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love." One of the most definable signs of progress in our day is the amazing inventions of transportation. We have bicycles and scooters, motorcycles and automobiles, buses and trains. I've been in other countries where I have traveled by bicycle taxi, by horses, by rickshaws, by camels. I was even in Italy one time with my wife, and we traveled by a water taxi. But there's an unmistakable contrast between all of those forms of transportation, those locomotion exercises and transportation devices, all of those are different and distinct from an airplane, from flying, 
all other forms of transportation that I've discussed can come to a complete stop when they're moving. They can come to a standstill. Most can even reverse their direction and back up. You can't do that in midair in an airplane. It cannot stop. It cannot stand still. It cannot back up in the middle of the air. Now, I know some of you military types will say there is a plane. That, I'm not talking about that one. Think of a plane you and I would fly in. If an airplane loses momentum in forward or upward motion, it falls to the ground and it crashes. The only safe, the only effective direction for an airplane is to keep moving forward. Stopping and reversing direction are not options in flight. Christian growth is more like an airplane than any other form of transportation. There is to be no stopping, no reversing in our growth, in our movement toward Christ. Like a plane, if, if we stop, if we, if we slip backwards in our pursuit of growing as a Christian, we are in immediate danger of crashing. So, if you're convinced that you ought to be growing as a believer, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that look like? Are you moving? How can you grow into a healthier relationship with the Lord in a healthy way with steady development, steady maturity, and, and, and steady growth? I wish we had a, a few minutes to sit together individually and we could have that conversation. What does it look like for a Christian to grow? to be a better Christian, to mature. As I said, Paul breaks down growth into two dimensions. Here's how to grow individually, and here's how the whole body grows together, the church grows together. Verses 14 and 15 are individual growth. Verses, verse 15, verse 14 and 15, individual. Verse 16 is corporate growth, and we'll look at that next week. How do we grow as a believer? How should you grow? How can you grow? How do you teach your kids to grow? How do you encourage each other in your care groups to grow? Let's break it down with Paul and find two essential concentrations of a Christian's personal, spiritual development. Two essential concentrations, things that you're focusing on, dimensions that you're addressing. Two essential concentrations of a Christian's personal, Spiritual growth or development. One's in verse 14. One's in verse 15. Let's look at the first. Number one, grow out of disastrous, immature, doctrinal instability. That's a mouthful, but Paul gives us the mouthful here. Growing out of, away from disastrous, immature, doctrinal instability. Verse 14. As a result, stop right there. As a result of what? What does he mean? Well, he says we're, we're no longer to be as a result of something. We're no longer to be something. As a result of what? Well, he just taught us that gifted people equip the church to become mature as we see, know, and imitate Jesus. That was in verse 14. Verse uh, 12, 13, rather. 
We, we're to grow into a mature man, a mature woman. The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, we're, we're becoming like Christ. What he was like, how he acted, the decisions he made, the values he had by looking at Christ. As a result of being mature like Christ, in Christ, being taught by gifted men in the church, we are to become spiritually mature. And then he gives, a, as a result of, of wanting to become spiritually mature, he says this, we're no longer to be children. But parallel that for a moment with verse 15, where he says, we are to grow up. You see the connection there? No longer to be children in verse 14, grow up in verse 15. Now, the word for children is not Paul's usual term for children. He uses it a few places, but not as many as uh, paideas or technon, which is kids or older kids. This is a different word. The, the translation of this word that's most accurate is infants, is babies. We are no longer to be babies. And in his day, calling someone a baby was kind of like what we do. You're such a baby, which means you're immature. You're whiny. You're, you're, you're not grown up. He uses that same word, nepios, for infant. What's very interesting is when you look at the two Greek dictionaries that I looked at, one of the distinguishing factors in the definition of nepios, of infant, is one who cannot speak. It's interesting because in the next verse, he's going to tell us, speak. Part of being an infant is being unable to articulate and speak sound, stable, biblical truth, biblical doctrine. An infant cannot speak. That's related to the command to speak truth in love in the next verse. Uh, I know they can make lots of noise, but it's hardly a conversation. The illustration here is to picture the opposite of maturity. It's, it's immaturity. Don't, don't, be a, don't be a baby any longer. Grow up. He's saying don't stay immature. Don't stay as a baby, literally a spiritual baby. He does use this word a few other places. Let me, let me give you a, a little um, insight into that. 1 Corinthians 3.1 I, brethren, could not speak to you as to men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I had to speak to you as babies. Very simple. Couldn't be very deep. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be babies, children, in your thinking, grow up, yet be infants, be babies in evil. In other words, be immature in your expression for evil. Be mature in your thinking about Christ. Don't be a baby. Grow up. We'll find out what being a baby looks like here in just a moment. Then he uses another illustration. He moves from that of babies and adults to... A storm, being spiritually immature, he likens to being in rough seas with no anchor in a strong wind. Now, you don't have to have been a, a seafaring person or have spent much time in a boat to understand this illustration. But if you have spent time at sea in rough, rough waters, you understand this very, very well. 
He says, don't be, as a result, don't be a baby. Don't be a child any longer. What is the definition of that? It's one who is tossed here and there, back and forth, by waves, high sea waves, caused by what? Every wind. And then he moves from the illustration to the actual thing he's illustrating. Every wind of what? Doctrine, theology. The picture is simple. It's universally understood. We can all imagine being in the middle of rough seas. You've probably seen pictures or videos or movies where this happens. It's battering. It's disorienting. It's unstable. And one thing is sure, when you're in the middle of rough water, you don't stay in the same place. You're always moving around. And that's why it says carried about, moved around, not stable, not in one place. By every, this is the point, every wind, every influence of doctrine, of theology. Bad theology is what he's describing here. Alternative, unbiblical doctrine, things that are outside and beyond and in contradiction to the Bible, to Scripture. I think it's interesting that the same illustration is used by James and by Jude. In the middle of trials, James says, Seek wisdom, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Jude says these are, speaking of false teachers, these are un. Uh, These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without any fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, trees without fruit, doubly dead, they are uprooted. What's the point? He's speaking about the reality that then and now Christians live in constant danger of being tossed to and fro, here and there, back and forth, by new and novel interpretations of Scripture, of the Bible. And today, frankly, is perhaps the most dangerous time in the history of the church due to the accessibility of bad theology on the Internet. I'll tell you, our leadership team is constantly fighting against wrong ideas about God, wrong ideas about his word, wrong ideas about the gospel that are truly every wind of doctrine. And they come into our body by coming into your minds like Trojan horses through Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, blogs, poisonous email chains. We've used the illustration so often if if a false teacher came and sat up a table in, in the atrium, didn't say anything, just sat there and had bad theology and bad little tracts and bad papers, and as you were walking through, they would say, stop, I wanted to give you some of these. It wouldn't be the leadership. You would join me in pouncing on this situation and saying, get out of here, what are you doing? And yet it happens on your computer and on your phone and on your tablet Daily, unscrupulous, unbiblical, anti-biblical, untested messages flood your mind without any checking. It's interesting here that the responsibility, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Jude, 2 Peter, Jesus all over the place, 
the responsibility for leaders to protect the flock from bad theology is everywhere. That's not here. This says, are you aware, are you aware of being vulnerable to every wind of doctrine and are you aware of being stable enough to grow away from and out of these unbiblical, unbiblical, un, un-anti-biblical ways of thinking? These dangers come in many forms. Flat out false doctrine. You know, somebody knocks on your door and tells you, I have a translation of the Bible that says Jesus is not God, he's a God. That's false doctrine. That's pretty easy. Somebody knocks on your door, usually in pairs, and, and they tell you, I mean, this is, this is the great message, ladies, that if you will love God and give your life to God and give a, a heart of service to God, then the great, the great present, the great goal, the great reward of your life is you'll die, go to your own planet, be eternally pregnant, and populate that planet. Does that sound like heaven to most of you ladies? That's Mormonism. Those are pretty easy to see, flat out bad doctrine, false doctrine. But there are more subtle winds of false doctrine that can come in, and I think I see them, you see them, day in and day out. The main one that we wrestle with is integrationism. And integrationism is when you mix together some biblical ideas with some humanistic ideas, and you get something that's neither humanistic nor biblical. Taking a little bit of psychology and saying, this is the way I was brought up, therefore this is the way I am. My past defines my present, not my sinfulness. Now, all of us know that our past influences who we are, but if the, if the problem is not sin, the gospel will never be the solution. How about philosophy? Take a little bit of philosophy and say, oh, this is how you think about this area or that area, and if I can, if I can take that and throw some Bible in there, then that makes it, makes it sanctified, that makes it holy. No, it doesn't. Politics. Wow, do we see integration with politics. Where people think that the American Constitution has almost equal authority to the canon of Scripture, the Word of God. Economics. This is the health and prosperity gospel where you take this idea that true success is is money and fame and fortune. And if you add some God in there, then you get godly fame and fortune and blessing. Humanism, we could go on and on. The, the point is mixing anything with Scripture doesn't equal something better than Scripture. Then there's this danger of conspiracies. I would liken it to this. This is trusting those who are not your pastors and elders to lead you to mistrust those who are your pastors and elders. I praise God for the internet at some level, for preachers that I can hear, for podcasts and sermons that I can download and and things I can read. Praise God for that. But let's say again that this passage, pastors and teachers, is pointing to the main spiritual shepherds of your souls being the leaders in your local body. Not the only people who have influence, but the primary influence. These are the men. I know these men. I've heard these men. I've, I've been in rooms with these men where these men weep when they pray for you. They talk about you with genuine love and care. They follow up. They talk 
with each other about how they can serve you. Those are, the el- those are my elders, not just an elder that I serve with. Those are the people who care for my soul. They're also charged with the guardianship of sound doctrine in this church and for us. Doctrine is important. Doctrine matters. Paul's saying, don't be like a baby. Don't be like an infant that's bounced around the ocean because any wind of anybody saying anything that sounds like it's godly can have an influence in you rather than being book, chapter, verse, and explanation of what God's word says. Because people are not anchored in God's truth, they, you, can be very vulnerable to any and every sort of counterfeit truth. You say, what does that mean? Paul explains it. He's so wise. He doesn't just leave us to guess what he's talking about. He goes on, he gives us three terms in logical sequence. Trickery or cunning, craftiness, and deceitful scheming. Trickery, it's cunning. Um, the, the, the words actually ends, is, is a, a description of weighted dice. It's the way that you would trick someone in a gambling game. You trick them. You give them a certain dice the, the, uh, to roll with, which are weighted against the game or not weighted at a random, but you have dice that are weighted and always get to your advantage. That's the word for trickery here. They trick you. False teachers can trick you into making you think that what they're saying is sound and biblical, but as they say in the NFL, upon further review, it's, it's not. Second word, craftiness. This points to unprincipled evil doing. It, it actually means that their life doesn't match their message. It's like the metaphor of a dirty pool. I think it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, Paul rejects this word outright. This is what he says. We have renounced secret and shameful things, secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception or craftiness, that's our word here, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the word, the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Every man's conscience, which is the way of saying and I want to represent our leadership team, our elders, our deacons, our care group leaders by saying we commend ourselves to your conscience. If we're correctable, we're not infallible, we're not perfect, we're not purely and wholly sanctified yet. We know each other. We, we can sanctify one another in love, which is what the end of verse 16 will say. We build each other up in love. We can have that relationship. You cannot have that kind of relationship with an internet preacher Look, praise God that we can learn things from them, but they're not your pastors and elders. And then the last one is the worst, deceitful scheming. The word for scheming is the Greek word from which we get the word manipulate. Deceitful, lying manipulation. Emotional manipulations that are untrue, that they lie about, they will say anything to get a following. In other words... Paul is saying, examine the sources of your theological understanding. Examine the sources. The New Testament is replete with warnings to stay away from false teaching by false teachers. 2 Peter 2.8, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they, false teachers, enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Their lives don't match their message. 
2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled, same word, unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness, your stability. And then back to you and every believer, 1 John 4, 6, we are from God who he, know, who, he who knows God listens to us. He who is apart from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, John believes that you can have enough discernment with enough investigation to discern truth and error. The responsibility is not just the leaders, it's also the sheep. Uh, Jude, I wish we had time to look at this in great detail because there's so many illustrations in this one verse. Jude 11, woe to them, the false teachers, for they have gone the way of Cain. Cain's a murderer. For they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, lying deceit. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah, which is mutiny against spiritual leadership. I think this raises the question for all of us. To whom do you listen for your theology and for your doctrine? Who do you read and what do you read? Speaking to someone last week at camp, a friend of mine who's, we're getting a little older together. And he asked the same questions. When you get two pastors together, there's always the same question. What are you reading? I love that question. What are you reading? And we talked about it. And then we had a discussion that was pretty sobering. In fact, I felt a lump well up in my throat when we were talking about it. I said, you know, I, I've come to the point where I, I realized that I can only read so many books between now and when I die. It's not as many. I mean, when I was 30, I thought I could read every book that was good on the planet. I, I can only read so many left. So I want to read good books, tested books. Who are you reading? What are you reading? Don't waste time with bad theological books, please. That's why we give you a, a list of books that are recommended that we think the whole church ought to read every year. Are you making clear, measurable efforts to grow in your doctrinal stability? What are you reading? What are you studying? What are you learning about? How about this? Do you recognize spiritual seasickness when it's present? If you're in this kind of rough seas, you should get seasick. The problem is this doesn't make you sick at your stomach. But can you recognize that you're unstable? I love John Frame's words. He says this, the church must ever seek in its theological life to verbalize biblically affirmed realities and biblically approved attitudes to make clear to itself what is and what will be involved in holding fast to these things and living it out in, the light, and, in light and power and to detect and reject inauthentic alternatives. I want to be precise. I think I told, told you one time, Kim and I, when I was looking to become a pastor from my a senior pastor a decade or so ago, there were several churches I talked to, and one I had a long interview with, and I uh, didn't know the church very well. They didn't know me very well, and, and uh, afterwards I got, I got an email, 
and said, thank you for your inquiry, but we're, we're, we're no longer interested in pursuing uh, you as our pastor because we just feel that you're too theologically precise for our liking. I was thankful that the Lord shut that down. But I was hurt. Not, I mean, that wasn't really about me, but about who, who says you don't, who says that you don't want to be theologically precise? I hope you do. Grow out of disastrous, immature doctrinal stability. So how do you grow into stability? Well, Paul's glad you asked. Because number two, growing up into truthful, loving, doctrinal stability. It's a mouthful again, but it's all important. Growing up into truthful, loving, doctrinal, theological stability. But, and that's a, it's a, it's a, a, an aversive. This is the negative. Don't be a baby. Grow up. But positively, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all. New American Standard supplies aspects. In everything, into him who is the head, Christ himself. The central call in verse 15 is very simple. We are to grow up. It matches not being an infant in the previous verse. How are we to grow? Well, what we find in Paul's answer to this question is one of the most important realities in your Christian experience. That's not an overstatement. It's in the little phrase, speaking the truth in love. Now, this has been a phrase that has been, frankly, so misapplied. Paul is not instructing the Ephesian readers to truthfulness in general as opposed to lying. This is not an appeal to be honest. Now, he does give an appeal to be honest later in the chapter, and we're going to get there. But that's not here. Aletheia, speaking truth, speaking what is truthful. Not just any truth, but biblical truth. This is about making the content of our conversations, the content of our interaction as Christians with each other to be truth, biblical truth. Look back at chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to go back and forward in just a minute. Chapter 1, verse 13. Paul references this. In him, in Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening, here it is, to the message of Truth, the gospel of your salvation. So when he says truth, he means theology, doctrine, the message of truth. What is true biblically? What is true theologically? What is true from Scripture? That's looking back. We'll get here eventually. In chapter 6, Paul will describe the believer's armor. You remember he's under house arrest. He's probably got a, a Roman guard standing in his room. He's looking at this armor on this guard, and he uses that as an illustration of how a believer should be stable and be ready and be ready to fight the battles that God calls us to fight against sin, against Satan, against self. Look over chapter 6 for a minute. This is interesting. The very first piece of armor is important. Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, here's our stability, to stand firm. 
Stand firm, therefore, first thing, having girded your loins with what? Truth. Gird your loins. Really interesting illustration. <laughs> Typically, uh, uh, a Roman soldier had a, a tunic that was a rectangle piece of cloth with a hole in the middle. You would put it on, on, on your head in the middle, and the tunic would lay in the front and the back. And in order to, to make it not flop around, you would bind it with a belt, and it would be secure. But when a Roman soldier would go into battle or even when a citizen would want to do something that, that needed him to be ambulatory, to move around, they would loosen the belt up, bring all four corners, two in the front, two in the back, up through the belt and tie it off and you would have a functional miniskirt. Short, white. It would expose your legs so that you could run. You could move around. That's what it meant to gird your loins. Now, this is a call to battle in Ephesians 6. But everyone to gird their loins when they did work that they needed to move around for. It means to be ready. So let's bring that back with us into chapter 4. Be ready. How do you be ready for life? How do you be ready for spiritual growth? How can you be ready for trials and difficulties? You're ready with truth. How do we learn this truth? Ah, we're taught it from the front. We've already heard that. This is different. You speak the truth to each other. This is your ministry one to the other to have, ba to have basic, solid, and advanced spiritual thinking that you can share with each other. Encourage each other with about it. Speaking truth means that we know our doctrine well enough to be ready for the doctrinal attacks of the enemy and speak it to each other so that we're equipping each other along with the gifted men. Now, the truth that we're to speak is truth about God, truth about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, truth about the Spirit of God, truth about the gospel, truth about the world, the universe, nature, people, trials, difficulties. In the context, we learn spiritual truths, scriptural truths from gifted men that teach us the scriptures, and we translate that in life-on-life -life interaction with each other. In other words, the language of a Christian includes the vocabulary of theology with each other. It's important that we talk about true things True biblical things with each other. Albert Leckie writes this. In contrast to the unscrupulous deception of verse 14, we looked at those deceivers, the apostle urges the need of holding the truth in love. This would not only act as a preservative from error, but assist in spiritual growth. Speaking the truth is one word, alethuo, to act, to, to speak truth and truthfully. The exhortation is not simply to speak but instinctively to recognize the truth, hold to it, live it out, end quote. He's right. But you can't just speak the truth. <laughs> you got to speak it in love. Speak the truth in love. Don't miss that attitude that speaking the truth is tucked inside. If we speak the truth without love, we can fall quickly into dominance and legalism. If we speak love without truth, 
will fall into license and justification and compromising sin. Love, what is love? Love is that disposition that looks out for the best for the one who is beloved. That's simply what love is. It looks out for the best for the one beloved. It's both attitude and action approach. And don't miss this. We'll see this when we get to later in the, in the epistle. Love, true biblical love, is not based on the loveliness, the lovability of the one loved. True love is loving others based on the way that God loved us. Look down the page, Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk, live in Love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Love like God, love like Christ. Colossians 3, a parallel passage, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all this, put on love, which is the perfect glue, the perfect bond of unity. The control for staying away from the imbalances of being legalistic or being licensed is growing up into him and in all things at the end. We speak the truth in love, growing up into him. This means, it says into him, even Christ, even who's the head. This means we understand Christ as the source of our growth and the goal of our growth. Now we're going to say much more about this when we get down to verse 20. Because Jesus truly is the curriculum of Christianity. You did not, verse 20, learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. There's our truth. It's in Jesus. Look how Paul ties together our doctrine, what we believe, and our practice, what we do at the end of the chapter. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor, slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, understanding or tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's what it means to grow up into Christ. We mature to his stature, verse 13 says. He is our source for growth. He is our goal in growth. Learning who he is, what he said, what he taught, what he did, how he died, that he's not dead, where he is, and what he's doing now. That matters. And we will dive into that beginning in verse 20. This whole chapter, excuse me, the first 16 verses of this chapter are about unity. A believer's unity with and among each other. The connective tissue of our unity, as we've already seen, is our common doctrine, solid doctrine, sound doctrine, biblical doctrine. That's why we have back up in verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. 
It's believing the same things. It's believing the right things. This will be important to remember next week as we look at verse 16. From whom the whole body fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies. What is a supply? Speaking to one another, how? With truth. Speaking truth to one another. We supply our giftedness, we'll talk about that, but we also supply doctrine to each other, accountability in what we believe. According to the proper working of each individual part, it takes all of us, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself, building up of itself in love, doing what's best for the ones that we love. I push back from my study this week and directed four takeaways to my own heart. Can I give those to you real quick? First, number one, as a result of this passage, I think we are to develop an aggressive and curious pursuit of doctrine of theology. We are to develop an aggressive and curious pursuit of doctrine or theology. What are you reading? What are you studying? What are you talking about? What do you care about? What Bible book are you, are you memorizing? Are you diving into? We're to develop an aggressive and curious pursuit of doctrine and theology. And that's, as we'll see next week, with each other. Number two, we are to engage in theological dialogue with others in our local body of believers. Speaking the truth in love. We are to engage in theological dialogue, talking about doctrine, with others in our local body of believers. That doesn't mean you get together and say, hey, let's just discuss the hypostatic union this afternoon. That'd be great if you want to do that. But it basically is looking at life. What does life give you? How does doctrine connect with what's going on in life? Thirdly, we are to find primary doctrinal nourishment in the ministries of the local church. We are to find primary, our primary doctrinal nourishment in the ministries, that's plural, of the local church. That's, we speak truth to one another, to each other in love in our local assemblies. And then lastly, we grow up in all aspects into him. This is just a tease for what Paul will tell us later. Fourth, we are to aim our growth at being close to Jesus in fellowship and imitation. Growing up into him, that's what it means. Aim our growth at being close to Jesus in fellowship and in imitation.